The Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to The Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, joining you from the lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples, the Songhees and Esquimalt First Nations, also known as Victoria, B.C., Canada. My guest today is Nicholas Pearson, author of several books, but here today to talk about one in particular called Crystal Basics, The Energetic Healing and Spiritual Power of 200 Gemstones. I really can't describe how enlivened I was as I read this book. It really is so rare for me to find such a compelling blend of like very high quality science education with spiritual discernment. There was a real deliberateness and thoroughness about um, that kind of material in this book. It, it really, it, it's so rare in this category of subject matter. I honestly learned so much from this book, and over the years I've probably read over two dozen others with very similar sounding titles, but honestly, this one is really not basic. Crystal basics, no, it's beyond basics. It's got fundamentals, but it goes beyond basics for sure. Just the uniqueness of selections in the directory of the 200 crystals and stones makes this a standout title in the category. It really sets a new bar for me in this genre. Nicholas studied mineral science in university and worked for, for several years at a museum featuring the largest mineral collection in the southwestern U.S. And on top of that, he's just like a really delightful and charming person. I kind of expected he would be from reading the book. Anyway, just quickly before we get started, though, folks, if you are one of the nearly 700 people now who've participated in my annual Yuletide Stocking Stuffer program over the last uh, three years, I hope you'll be joining us again this year. So going into its fourth year, this program has a new name. I, it, I don't know that it's any more clear to people what the program is from the name, but it has a new name. It's now called the Yuletide Folk Fest or the Yuletide season of folk celebration for long. <laughs> this annual holiday staple is a 12-day mini program of European folklore, suggested rituals, and five-minute daily meditations to help keep you calm and connected through the season. Basically, it's like a private podcast featuring two episodes a day, so you get like a 10 to 20-minute folklore and storytelling show, and then a three to five-minute meditation that'll help you ground and center in like a quick drop-in for a moment of calm each day. So stay tuned till the end of the show to find out how to join. But for now, I hope you'll enjoy my my animated and just delightful conversation. Animated on my part. <laughs> I was like so thrilled uh, to invite Nicholas on the show. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the conversation. So Nicholas, what identities do you lead with? Well, I consider myself a writer, author, and teacher, as well as a queer person. I use he, him pronouns, but I'm pretty down for whatever you want to call me within reason. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, Nicholas, you know, podcasts and radio are like theater of the mind. So people can't tell that you are wearing a really lovely um, necklace of stones. I'm very curious. Could you tell me what it is you're wearing and uh, why you selected it? Well, thank you for asking. This is one of my favorite gemstone allies. So I'm wearing a mineral called rhodonite. Rhodonite is a silicate of manganese, and I was initially attracted to it because I have an anxiety and panic disorder. 
And I've, I've used a lot of different tools, allopathic and otherwise, for managing that with moderate success some days. But I find that one of the allies that helps me remember to take control of the factors that I can take control of and surrender the rest is rhodonite. It keeps me grounded emotionally. Um, it gives me the warm fuzzies, which is always really important, I think, when, when things are kind of going amiss. And it's almost like this emotional anchor. So whatever stream of, of emotion is running through your consciousness, you don't get swept away by it. You can show up for it. You can process it and witness it, but you don't have to get taken out to sea, so to speak. Oh, it's so nice to meet Rhodonite in that kind of way. What Actually, you just demonstrated what I love about your book. So the book that we're talking about today is your book, Crystal Basics, The Energetic Healing and Spiritual Power of 200 Gemstones. Um, I am thrilled to have you on the show. Can you see how many like darts I have in there? That's like a lot it. of notes. Yeah, that that's a lot of notes. This this it took me a while to get through this book. It's so good, Nicholas. The grimoire section at the back. My listeners know I have a book coming out next year, and um, will be sad to hear that the the sort of grimoire section of the the like magical correspondences of ingredients is has been extremely cut in my book. And I looked at yours and was like. <gasps> That's what I wanted to do. It's so good. You have all of these stones as an index of healing properties. So you could look up stamina, stomach, strength, and find all of the stones that go with that. Then you could go to like psychological healing and look up, you know, addiction or broken heart or calming. It's just, it's organized so well and it's so in-depth. Can you tell us why do you know so much about stones and minerals? What's your vocation? Yeah, I, that's a that's a great kind of way to phrase it. Why do I know all this? Um, it starts with the most fundamental premise in my life. I really like rocks. So, like <laughs> most extensions of 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 everything else happen because of that. So, I was that kid who picked up pebbles from the seashore and other exotic locations, like the you know grocery store parking lot. And <laughs> my my grandfather saw this behavior and gave me my first piece of quartz, which I actually have right here on my desk to this day. Oh. Um, it was packed away for many months after I made my last move, but I finally uncovered the box that it was in and now we're constant companions again. So I can remember how I got here. Uh, but suddenly like this, this really inert part of the landscape, which I already loved, but let's face it, un until you study the science behind it, rocks are rocks. Um, <laughs> it was It was transfigured into something luminous and regular and these beautiful prism faces that are, are so astonishingly regular and it does weird things with light, like refract and reflect. And, um, you can't as a small child, especially look at a natural piece of quartz and not think that it is magic. Mm -hmm. Now, simultaneously, I have this profound love of fairy tales and folklore and ancient history and world mythology. So as a small kid, you know, here I am given my first mineral specimen. And then I'm like opening up the picture books about um, earth science or uh, world history or like ancient Egypt. And I'm, I'm seeing the same kinds of things, the rocks, the minerals, the gemstones in these places. And I start mm -hmm. to notice probably younger than, than anyone normally would the, there are these two parallel lexicons that are describing the same phenomena in the world. We've got science, which uses a, a particular set of language and symbols to identify and explain what we 
see in the world around us. And then we also have the spiritual traditions of the world, which use a parallel set of symbols and languages to explain the same phenomenon. And I'm, I'm certainly not saying that everybody's saying the same thing, but I am pointing to the fact that the the relationship we have to the natural world and our desire to understand and derive meaning from it is a fundamental and universal human experience. And that, oh, absolutely. that's magic. It really is. And your passion for and in-depth relationship with gemstones is so evident in every page. Every page I turned, I was like, what? what? And then you keep going deeper and deeper. So I I mean, I also was a kid who was taking out books from the library when I was like 10 years old of like how to do lucid dreaming, crystals for healing, like I all those kinds of things. It's really like quite comical when I find some of the books I used to have, but I used to love crystal books as well. Crystal books about crystals were more accessible to me than actual crystals growing up, growing up in a very small town. We had like kind of one new age store. It wasn't until I was like a teenager that I felt like confident going into it and looking around. Um, and then I, like many people went through kind of, a a, 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 a almost, well, a very acquisitive phase with crystals and um, still buying lots of books. I have never come across a book like yours with such rare and unusual listings in the actual gemstones that you've selected to talk about. Of course, there's pyrite and crystal and fluorite, and but we're not talking just like blue lace agate and carnelian here. There are some very amazing specimens that I just haven't, like I've never seen wolfenite and Vesuvianite and Zircon and things like that in very many other uh, crystal books. So like kudos to you. Um, and I feel like I'm sitting with a in, in somebody of encyclopedic knowledge. So this may sound very basic, but in your book, some of the concepts you introduce pretty early on are entrainment, coherence, and amplification. And those really struck me as being very organizing in my mind. This is why crystals are so beloved to me and why they uh, work and why I'm resonating with them. You had many other things, but those three really stood out to me. Can you tell us what do those terms mean and how they translate when working with crystals and healing? Yeah, this is great. Um, this is this is the kind of stuff that I live for. When I look for the patterns, like what's really going on here, these are the kinds of things that drive my my inner and outer work with crystals. So I'm so glad this resonated with you. So let's start with coherence. Um, we might kind of poetically describe the state of coherence as when all of the parts and pieces of something are marching in step. They're you know in perfect synchrony, harmony, however we want to think of that. So all the separate bits of a whole picture are unified. Now, with crystals, we see this at a very material level. We define a crystal as a usually solid substance. We'll put a little asterisk there and come back if we have to. Um, with a, a homogeneous composition. So it's more or less the same stuff all the way throughout. And then it has to have a repeating and symmetrical structure. And that repeating symmetrical structure made out of the same ingredients through and through is like coherence to a T. <laughs> when we start looking at physics, not just the, the materials and geometry of it, but if we look at the, the physics 
the electromagnetism of crystals, of stuff, it doesn't just have to be crystals, we see that the more orderly the substance of something is, the more orderly the immaterial part of it is as well. Mm. So I'm sure it's going to be no shock to your listeners to discover that like solid stuff is mostly empty space and what little bits are in there in constant motion. So when we have these, these systems that are in motion, when they vibrate, when they oscillate, they generate electromagnetic fields. So you can be a beautiful piece of citrine or calcite or, you know, a celestial uh, ruby or, or diamond of the highest order, but you could also be like a particle of dust or of fiber in my carpet. And you're still made out of little particles that vibrate and therefore you generate an electromagnetic field. Um, <clears throat> but crystals are special because the kinds of electromagnetic fields that they generate are just as orderly, just as harmonious or coherent as their internal structure. And that's what makes them so effective at doing everything else they've got to do. And that leads us into this topic of entrainment. So generally speaking, if we have two energy fields that come into contact with one another, when they come into that state of communion or communication, they will exchange information and in an idealized setting, so long as they're harmonious enough to start out with, one will begin to kind of sync up with the other. And the one that takes the lead is always going to be the one that has what we call a higher amplitude. So imagine, if you will, we go back in time to like the ancient, ancient era when radios had like actual knobs that you had to turn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, there are two knobs. You've got the frequency, which is your station. You know, those numbers are like actual hertz. It's like measures of cycles per second. It's the literal frequency of the radio wave. And then the other one that we pay attention to is volume. That's the amplitude. So if we look at a sine wave, the S-shaped squiggle that makes uh, the, the the graph of how we map out energy, um, the, the number of curves it makes in whatever unit we're using to measure, arbitrary or not, is frequency, the number of cycles per second, for example, or whatever other measurement. And then the distance away from center, how tall or short it is, is amplitude. And that's that's where the, the volume part comes into play. So with crystals, that natural order suggests that they have a higher amplitude for starters, because clearer signals, clearer messages can be detected from much farther away. And so my energy field is anything but coherent. And to everyone listening, I'm sorry to be the first person to tell you that you are not coherent. <laughs> Just on an, like, an electromagnetic makeup, though. Because like you kind of have to be incoherent. Your liver should have a different rhythm, cycle, makeup, energy than your heart, your lungs, your kidneys, your big toe. Because they're all made of separate stuff and they have different functions. So our, our net sum of energy is an interplay of all these things. It's in a state of constant flux. I hold up any variety of quartz and it's always the same substance through and through, more or less. And it always has the same composition and structure, more or less. And therefore, it's going to produce a very rigid, predictable, regular, and coherent energy field. So when I bring this into contact with mine, it entrains my energy field to become a little bit more coherent, a little bit more crystalline, we could say. And that's that's where entrainment comes into play. Now, the side effect of this is that when we entrain an energy field, when we teach it to be more coherent, it also increases its own amplitude. So the analogy that I like to use or that the, the example I can use to illustrate this that we can kind of put into the real world, imagine that you're walking down a hallway and you're approaching a room with a closed door. And on the other side of that door, you've got 100 people and they're like in little groups and they're all having their own conversations. It's an imaginary world with no pandemic, of course. And... <laughs> And you open the door and there's a dull roar. 
but you can't really make out a single message from that. That's us. Um, you might get close to one conversation or another and, and have a takeaway from that, be able to get the message. But if you close the door and start walking down the hallway, it's just white noise. It fades from the background. Nothing comes through. But if we were to suddenly harmonize, to, to raise the coherence of that through a process of entrainment, it's like at the drop of a hat, everyone begins to recite a piece of poetry together or sing a song or anything else without raising their individual volume, without changing the volume of a single voice in the room. The collective voices marching in step can be heard anywhere in the room. They can be heard standing outside the closed door. They can be heard halfway down the hallway because coherent messages travel farther. And that's how crystals amplify energies, intentions, ideas uh, in the healing process. Nicholas, my hands are in the air. I'm like <laughs> so excited by your explanation. I feel coherent just hearing it, you know, and that's such a settling experience. When I'm doing somatic work with people, I often talk about how one of the, the ways that we ground is through a sense of inner coherence. That's, I think, why some people, you know, they do familiar patterns or they like throw themselves into work when they're going through a chaotic time, because if that's your area of competence and you, you're in familiar patterns, it's very, it gives and offers a sense of coherence inside. And so instead of scanning my world for all the ways in which coherence and uh, amplification and entrainment are, are at play, makes so much sense to me in an interpersonal kind of way. And I love that that really maps beautifully onto my more animistic relationships with crystals, with animals, with trees, with bodies of water, you know, it's like, right, this makes so much sense to me that um, there's a kind of orderliness in the unseen that I feel and I start to become entrained by. And that coherence is like amplifying I, I, all the good things. It's just, it's, it's very exciting. It's a very fresh and exciting way to understand crystals. So thank you so much for, for sharing that. My pleasure. Thank you for asking. So I also really liked the way you contextualize the chakra system in your book. Um, because so if, you know, what folks have just heard you say, now imagine you writing a whole section on, you know, Eastern mysticism. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you, you, you bring still this very orderly lens that is a really lovely fusion of uh, the mystic and the scientific one of the little throwaway lines you say in there is uh, that color only accounts for about one fourteenth of the total energy of a stone, which may surprise folks that that's a thing <laughs> and mm -hmm. may, you know, perhaps offer a different lens on how um, those of us who are not of that lineage have understood the chakra system. I, I'm very curious, how how do you approach that system? And can you also just explain what you mean by this 114th color is 114th of the energy of the stone? How's that measured? Well, you know, I'm going to be very transparent and say that I am not the originator of this concept. And one of my mentors and teachers like drove this home over and over again. Um, she's the author formerly known as Naisha Ozian. She's changed her name. She's Samaya K. Astor. And she recently retired because she can and we're happy for her. <laughs> Um, but she once upon a time used to work with a physicist. She was like his personal assistant or secretary along those lines. And, you know, she'd have to type up all, type up all the reports and the grants and all this other stuff. But that also meant she got like daily lessons in physics. So 
Um, part of that was the physics of light and color and all sorts of other things that really shaped the way she approached crystals. And since I already had a very deeply um, science-centered approach to crystals, this this concept felt very good to me. Um, I'm also going to point out that I have a natural bias against relying upon color, and it's twofold. One, to a geologist, color is often like the least important thing when identifying a rock or mineral, because lots of minerals are not allochromatic. They're not colored by their own constituents, but by traces of other stuff. So like quartz can be every color of the rainbow and then a whole bunch of other colors that we don't have names for in our standard spectrum because of other things that fit in there. That color isn't going to tell us it's quartz. The other features do. So we use color last. Um, the other bias that I've got is that I'm actually profoundly colorblind. So I don't primarily relate to the world through the lens of color. I see a lot of color. I don't see the same complement of colors that other people do. And so I've had to learn to rely on all those other factors for identifying rocks and minerals first and foremost. And thank goodness I've got that science background so I can do that. Um, but that being said, when we look at a stone that appears blue to us, so like I'm going to use this blue chalcedony that I'm holding up as an example. This chalcedony is not blue. Um, this is actually a very strange case and I'll, we'll get into why it's extra strange, but um, it, <clears throat> it is not blue because it's absorbing blue. It's actually absorbing every other end of the spectrum. So it's rejecting blue light and reflecting that back to our eyes, and therefore we receive that. And that's just how color works with everything. Um, this is a special case. It actually doesn't have any blue pigment whatsoever. And if you hold it up against a light, which I don't think I can do very well in, in this room, but um, it's actually gray, and it's colored by another optical effect, not by pigment, but by something called Rayleigh scattering. It's what makes our sky appear to be blue. Mm. Good day, at least. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just the way light gets kind of scattered through that we perceive it as blue. So it's even less blue than the normal blue object. So considering what, what parts of the spectrum it's actually absorbing versus what it's not, um, that visible color accounts for only the tiniest sliver of its electromagnetic makeup. More importantly, if we want to understand what clues can be found in a, a crystal's energy, we can look to its formation process, its crystal structure, like what geometry it has, um, and what its chemical composition are. To a lesser extent, we'll also look at color and hardness and diaphaneity or how light moves through it or other, other physical, chemical, optical, mechanical properties. And those give us much more important clues. Um, if we contextualize that inside the idea of the chakra system, the chakra system as we know it today has been evolving separately, like without direct relationship to the original Vedic teachings for, uh, you know, give or take 200 years. And the sequence of colors that most people are most familiar with only dates to the ancient and mystical year of 1977. <laughs> um, great year. Wonderful year. After or I was so born. I'm told. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Amazing. So, you know, if we contemplate that, that means that the the Vedic systems, plural, because there's not one and they do not agree, uh, of chakras, did not necessarily follow the same sequence of chakras in color, location, or number, and that the, uh, the colors you might attribute to them would be different depending on the purpose you were trying to get out of it. And that's so different from a system that tries to view chakras through the lens of being these sort of non-physical organs. And this is where I'm going to say a phrase that I like to use a lot. We cannot confuse the map for the territory. So all of these are models. 
And models are really helpful. I can look at a model of the solar system and understand the relationship, but I can't put my finger on Pluto and then my finger on the moon and say, I've just traveled from one to the other. I have, I have conceptualized the distance or the order at least. Um, and different models are drawn to different scales and maybe cannot accurately convey the reality. So when we look at something like the chakra system, you're going to have modern day systems that try to stick as close to the Vedic as original. Um, you're going to find some that have more chakras, less chakras, chakras in different places, different names for the same ones. Uh, the same chakra mapped out on two places in the body with different names because someone got something confused. <laughs> and here's the weird part. They all work. Um, because they are models. And the absolute reality of this is something that we cannot yet measure with science. Um, I believe that if we're kind of going through this model of them being like etheric organs, there probably are, um, we'll say, a sort of nexus or plexus of electromagnetic energies that, that kind of move through these general zones. Um, and that's why we find similar zones used in different cultures as well. Maybe not all of the same ones, but at least a few key ones seem to repeat in various places. Um, like the head and the heart, sometimes the belly. Uh, but you know the the truth is that if we start to recognize that the Western chakra system, which dates to 1977 and uses this particular sequence of colors, is only one way of working with crystals, and that the earliest evidence we have of the use of crystals in in the archaeological record may be, 450,000 years old, maybe, just maybe, this 40-plus-year-old system isn't the only way to work with crystals. That right. doesn't, make it, it doesn't make it any better or any worse than the other model, just that it's one model of many. So mm -hmm. when I approach the human energy field, I like to think, what is the therapeutic model really telling me? And color isn't always the indicator. So like, if we need a crystal to support communication, first off, are we really talking about the throat chakra? Or is it an issue with how we feel about our words or whether we have the confidence for our words? You know, if you come to me asking what stone is for the throat chakra, I'm like, well, what's going on with your throat chakra? I'm like, well, I can't communicate. Well, why? That's like a question nobody asks. Why? Um, so we got to start there. And then look at the therapeutic indication for the crystal. Does it match the end goal? Don't just pick any blue stone and put it on the throat chakra. Will that do something beneficial? Probably, maybe, who knows? Um, but like getting to the bottom of your issues is far more important. And you only do that with self-reflection. And we live in such like a memified world that if we can conceptualize something in a couple of buzzwords, we are done thinking past those couple of buzzwords. And historically, this is not what spiritual practice has looked like. And I think it is great that people have access to things in greater quantities on bigger platforms than the history of the world has ever had. But I also think there are vast limitations to that. And my, my hope is that we'll start doing those hard things like asking why and, mm -hmm. and seeking a, a more stable context. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I want to just flag that you, when you were talking about the crystal's actual structure, you have a section here, but you also have a whole other book on seven crystal systems, or basically these seven um, archetypal uh, crystals, you might say. And I wonder if you could just say briefly um, a little bit about that, because I, I 
anybody who loves rocks, especially is like fi- finds themselves a spiritual seeker and uh, is like kind of interested in geology is going to love this book. And, and I just think that that sense of these seven primary modes that crystals are made, it just made so much sense to me. And I, I had never thought of it that way as a spiritual seeker. Could you just give us a little bit of the, the, the Cole's notes on that? Yeah. So um, if we look at crystal structures, there are only a handful of, we'll say, geometrical relationships that describe all the axes and angles inside them. And we can group those, depending on the authority, into six or seven groupings. I, In the US, we mostly use seven. The other world disagrees, but that's fine. Um, <clears throat> and so each one of those kind of represents the primary mechanism or direction of focus in a crystal's energy. So like formation process is the level of activity. Crystal structure is the direction or area of emphasis. And then the composition, the ingredients are the specific mechanisms at play. And if we look at those three things and how they relate to each other, they spill out the bigger picture of what crystals do. And the the crystal structure part was one of the early things I started to notice when I actually worked in the science field and started to like have my own personal experiences with crystals and then reading other people's interpretations of crystals who were not interested in the science of it. I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I was just meditating with vanadinite, which is a hexagonal mineral. And I just read about all these barrels, which are hexagonal minerals. And I, I see a relationship here in my experience and this author's and that author's. Maybe there's something to the structure. And so that's that's the kind of like entryway for me. That was my gateway drug. And then, you know, I just kind of sat with that and did as much research as I could until I could flesh out a, a system. It's amazing. I'm I'm super excited to get that book because I love I mean, it kind of comes again to coherence. It's like, oh, and then there are groups of crystals that are going to be pretty good at this function because of the way they were made. It may, it's, it's like obviousness in retrospect, but nobody's mm-hmm. ever written about crystals in this way in the spiritual um, uh, genre, as far as I know. So it, that was that was something I was very grateful to come across. So. I feel confident that we can explore some of the more um, touchy, uh, emotionally charged, and even political uh, aspects of working with crystals. I would like to talk about some of the muddy places. So um, do you think it's really possible to find crystals that are free of violence and exploitation. I know I'm not the only person who went through that acquisitive phase of like fascination and um, just, you know, they're so alluring and I, I acquired them and I went to not just shows, but, you know, got invited to like the private viewings in the, you know, hotel rooms where they have wine and everybody is like buying when the timer (laughs) goes off and that kind of stuff. And now I look back and think, oh man, these are all of these crystals are from like war torn, you know, they're, they're, there's, you know, indentured servitude and child slavery and all kinds of things that I'm like, Oh my fuck. <laughs> like, what do I even do with this now? Um, and so you must have to grapple with this all the time. So what, what do you, what do you think about that, about the exploitation, even just like ripping crystals just for decoration from the mm. earth. What, what do you, how do you, how do you grapple with that? It's complex and there 
There is no satisfying soundbite I can ever give anyone who asks me these questions. But I am really happy that people keep asking me these questions because it means there's a bigger conversation taking place. It's not about you and me right now and just just the people tuning into this, but I think it is symbolic of the kinds of things we all grapple with and the the desire to do better. Like, you know, love or hate the term woke. As as we get more woke, we start to care about stuff. And as long as it's not purely performative, then good things can happen. They don't always happen because you have to couple that with like, you know, actually doing stuff. Um, and this is a complicated thing because we are not the ones mining the rocks. Like really you want a stone that is absolutely free of violence, that is completely ethically, soundly, safely, um, economically, ecologically sound in its sourcing, you have to go get it yourself. And you have to do so in a way with a minimal carbon footprint that disturbs the environment as little as possible and um, responsibly takes that stone and leaves no mess behind. And like, you can do this. It is absolutely possible. You may not get glamorous things like lapis lazuli or jadeite um, or, you know, even a a humble piece of calcite, unless you live in the right region to have access to these things and can do so in a place where it is safe and legal to do so. Mm -hmm. Um, But like the rocks in your backyard are made of crystals as well. They can bring about that sense of uh, coherence, entrainment, amplification, and and all the other great things that crystals do. So like work with humble stones, it is definitely a, a great way to kind of circumvent this um, I, I recently wrote a companion book to Crystal Basics, not not a sequel, but like a, a addendum to it that's going to be more pocket encyclopedia. And it has a lot of really humble common rocks in it for that reason. So that way nice. you can use the geology of your backyard. Um, but the the truth is that in most cases, we can never know the entire journey that a crystal has taken to come out of the earth and get into our hands. And we will most assuredly never know every pair of hands that has passed through to get through get to us. There are definitely exceptions to this. And they're, they're not always few and far between, but you know, the, the ones that are the exceptions are not usually our run-of-the-mill tumbled stones. Um, I am seeing a greater push in the market for people uh, requesting, desiring, searching for, um, ethically sourced stones. And, and even that is a really nebulous term, like who defines whether it's ethical. There's like no fair trade organization that regulates this. Um, I see a lot of online stores that call any and all of their stones ethically sourced when I know for a fact that their um, polished malachite coming from the Congo did not come from the <laughs> most ethical of mines. Um, Congo is one of the places where mining and extraction industry has some of the worst human rights violations in the world. But even that is really complicated because they're not engaged in those activities to sell tumbled malachite to crystal healers. They are looking for things like cobalt and tantalum and niobium and indium and really, really rare and valuable ore minerals that we use in our technology. Um, They're looking for things like mica to put in cosmetics So, you know, here we've got these influencers denouncing the ethics of crystal healing with their faces painted uh, on their devices, both of which, you know, the makeup Mm -hmm. and the device have have worse human rights violations from mining and extraction than your tumbled piece of rose quartz probably ever will. 
Well, so, you've brought us exactly where, yeah. where the, the, the question starts for me. It's like we all live in capitalism. We have to discern for ourselves day to day how much exploitation is going to be too much for me to engage in today. Like, really? Yeah. That's really the question. And so uh, I have troubles when it comes to, because people will ask me, like, what do, what do you do about it? And it's like, well, gosh, you know, to be honest, I haven't found a good thing. So that's why I'm sitting around with the crystals I've had for 15 years now, because yeah. I, I can't think of anything good to do other than now have crystal swaps and trade them with other people who also have them and be like, okay, here we, but I have an iPhone. I have Mike in my makeup. I, you know, all of the things that you're describing. Yeah. So um, I, I don't, I try not to create more of a market is kind of the best I can do. Sure. Um, and, and, and so what would you say to folks like me who are like, okay, I don't necessarily want to purchase more crystals. Um, but I have these crystals that come from, yeah, places like Congo or uh, others where you just know this is like not a good thing. How, how do you, treat and approach and and hold those crystals in a healing way well you know here's the thing i don't think anything in this world is born without a certain amount of violence whether it's the food mm-hmm. i'm eating i mean if i've got to go out and harvest herbs from my garden a living being has to sacrifice a piece of itself so i can take those herbs mm-hmm. so um everything is influenced here. And we have to remember there, there is a relative scale. I don't say that to absolve myself of guilt or make us feel better and say, you know, go, go be a consumerist. Um, but I am saying that if you're going to do it, there, there certainly are maybe internal measures that we can take. It's, it's kind of like the, the, the Buddhist practice of blessing your food and every pair of hands involved in the preparation of that from the person who made your meal, the person who served you your meal, the person who packed the veggies for transit, the person who um, harvested them and planted them, the whole, the, whole, the whole system. So if we start to take inventory of the ripples made with the market, then maybe through practices of gratitude, practices of reverence, if, if I take it very seriously that the lapis in my collection, no matter how old, may have contributed to you know terrorist groups like ISIS in the past, and I have no way of knowing this, there's just no way of knowing unless I go there myself, um, then I'm less likely to, to keep wanting to fund those kinds of things. Um, but there are also things we can do as consumers to offset the market. Buy old rocks, buy things from historic collections, buy things that are mined near you or as near to you as you can get. I mean, the U.S. has this massive mining history, so I'm lucky that I live in a place where like, I can buy things of historic significance, and I do that regularly. There are um, people who do wholesale import-export and all sorts of other things that are going to great lengths to document and demonstrate that it is possible to ethically source crystals. One of my favorite success stories about that um, is Zambian citrine. Uh, I only know of two importers in North America, um, one based in Ontario and one based actually here in Florida, um, who, who go to really extraordinary lengths to show that uh, the people doing the mining have been paid a fair amount of the total cost of those stones, that they're working in safe conditions. Um, um, the, my, my primary contact for, for this particular material um, here in Florida 
Um, he had to like broker a deal with the government of the U.S. and the government of Zambia to be able to bring it in and, and have all this stuff documented. And so like I feel really good buying Zambian citrine. Why, whether I buy it directly from him or anywhere else, I know it's channeled through these kinds of sources because it's the only way it gets into our market here. Um, you can also like find independent rock hounds who like go and find things themselves. And thanks to social media, like I have bought things from rock hounds and fossickers and rock wrestlers from all over the world. And I know that the impact is relatively low because like they backpacked there. They only took as much as could fit in their backpack and like rocks are heavy. So there's a limit to that. Um, and of course there's a carbon footprint to that. There's a carbon footprint to the mailing of it. There's, there's a carbon footprint to everything, but it's much less than the big industrial kinds of things. And if all you have access to is the big industrial things and crystals are, are the thing you are called to work with, just be cognizant of that. Sit with that discomfort. Should you have any, and like ask questions. Mm -hmm. If if we really want to change things, we ask questions. We we go to our stores and say, do you know the provenance of this? Do you know where it came from? And the answer is probably no. Maybe it's country of origin. Maybe it's a whole story. And those stones where we hear the whole story, those are the ones that maybe we should spend a little bit more time, energy, and money investing in and working with because those are the ones that we can use to to mitigate harm. Maybe not to eliminate it, but to to moderate how much of it is taking place. Mm, thank you. Thank you. I agree with so much that you've said there. How do you feel about using simulated stones like, you know, goldstone, for instance, or things that that have been altered? Like it's, you know, when Aqua Aura stones came out, I was like, what the fresh hell is this? Like, this is quite a long time ago. I was like, this isn't a real, this doesn't come from nature. And, um, but I have to say, you know, how however long I don't, how long has aqua aura been around a couple decades a decade yeah, maybe a couple um, decades at least it's like okay it's pretty <laughs> you know like it's hard to resist in certain contexts so how do, how do you feel about those kinds of categories of stones particularly like for for healing work you know it, are they just really nice paperweights or would you ever use them um, it really boils down to the exact process. So, you know, opalite is really beautiful, but the, the process used to make it is the same process used to make my windshield minus some tempering. So like would I use a fragment of windshield in a crystal grid to heal a client? Probably not. I, I can't imagine a place where that is useful. Um, I'm not saying you can't work with opalite. I'm just saying that when I when I look at the greater context, its origin story and what it's actually made out of, it's no different than any other piece of glass. And so it it's not something I particularly feel a, an attraction to in my practice. Um, some kinds of uh, simulants are, are made out of natural things that are altered in a way to resemble other natural things. Lots of simulants are made out of pretty darn artificial things. And so, you know, if something's full of resins and plastic and dyes, I prefer not to use that in a therapeutic context. I certainly don't want to put it in my drinking water. I might not even feel good about laying it on someone's body um, as objects that reflect or emit color. You know, we might use them in color therapy, but that's a, a kind of a different MO than crystal healing. So I'm not really there. Um, things that are synthesized, they are, they are synthetic counterparts to their they're naturally occurring analogs, so same composition and, and structure and so on and so forth, but the birth took place more recently in, an, in a lab rather than out in the field. That's a little bit different. Um, energetically, the primary drivers are there, 
but it's kind of like having a really beautiful stained glass window with no light behind it. You can still tell it's an object of beauty, but it's not really ensouled just yet. Mm -hmm. um, there is work you could do around that. I have met exceptions. I, I don't know if it's nearby. It usually is, but I have this really fabulous um, lab-grown quartz. It's a, a, a perfect type of uh, Japan law twin created in the lab by this Russian scientist in Ohio who grows these out of sheer love for the experiment of growing them and has engineered all the conditions necessary to create all these different habits of quartz crystals. And he can, he can predict this solution, this temperature, this amount of electrical current, all this other stuff. And he can, he can generate a, a predictable crystal form out of that. And sure. the love he has is evident in the finished product. I held one of these for the first time uh, at a trade show once. And like, I was a grown man crying over a rock grown in a laboratory. And I'm like, <laughs> I was really mad about it, in fact. But like, <laughs> there, there was obviously something to it because of the, the reverence and love that went into it. So it's it's more nuanced than just man-made things are not useful, but like, what is the actual process? I would not feel good about putting um, irradiated gemstones on a person, even those that are like gamut radiation doesn't, doesn't leave any residual radiation in, in the substance, but that stone has gone through monumental change in such a small amount of time that like, it will never be the same. So energetically, vibrationally, spiritually, it is probably not the right therapeutic tool. But again, you know, there's there's an exception to every rule. So I would say um, use discernment. I do have a section in the book on things that are treated and simulated, synthetic, and like what the different kinds of processes are. And, you know, also for context, like humankind has been treating gemstones for so long that there are medieval manuscripts written to lapidary therapists and um, pharmacies teaching them how to discern natural from treated from artificial. Like this is not a, a thing that just happened in the last 20 years with the explosion of the crystal industry. Um, if you if you look at um, apothecary manuals in medieval and early modern Europe, they will almost, if, if they have a de decent section on lapidary medicine on, on gemstones, then they will almost always have an appendix that tells you how to tell which are real and which are not. So it's nothing new under the sun. Right. Wow. That's amazing. Well, and I really appreciated that in the book because honestly, how would you know otherwise? It's not like you walk into the bead store and they're like, this is a radiated, you know, like they, they're not telling you provenance and treatment and, you know, they've got blue goldstone right beside rhodonite and things. You just, they, there's no category for this is like a man-made item and this is a naturally sourced item and this is an enhanced item and this is simulate, like they don't tell you. So yeah. again, this is why your book is, is so um, important and fantastic. So you also have this other section in the book where I felt a little bit called out. Like I, I was like, I bet everybody's going to feel a little called out by this because you have this whole thing about you know how you love certain crystals and you want to work with them and them only all the time and like they're your buds and your rider dies. What about working with the stones that are not so captivating? And and maybe some people might feel this way about, you know, the humble backyard rock, uh, yeah. of which I actually do have many and certain ones that like move around my garden and stuff that I'm like, <laughs> oh, that rock, that would be it. Sometimes for just like a good view and sometimes for use. But but I, I sort of find there's like a similar sense here. It's like, what about working with the stones that we're not drawn to? So can you share a bit of your philosophy about that? 
For sure. And for anyone who does feel called out by this concept, like, I just want to say that I'm not exempt from this. Like, I have my own stones that I really avoid working with too. And they might be things that like intellectually, aesthetically, I adore, I appreciate, like the mineralogy of this is incredible to me, but you can sit on this shelf. You are just fine where you are. I bought this $400 strand of, $400 strand of beads, but it's just going to stay in this jar because I'm not going to wear it. Like, I'm I'm there with you. And um, sometimes those are the medicines that the soul needs the most. And I like to use the analogy that the crystals we feel the greatest resonance with tend to represent lessons or energies or ideals that the soul has somehow gotten comfortable with. It's, you know, if, if we subscribe to reincarnation, maybe somewhere along the journey, this is something our soul has already learned how to do. Maybe we're not particularly adept at it this time around, but like, it's not alien to you on, on the most fundamental level of who you are. But those crystals that feel like they make you want to turn around and run away or chuck it into a body of water or, you know, walk right by it at the crystal store, they are probably so uncomfortable because they represent some energy or concept that is outside your realm of expertise at the soul level. And therefore, they represent the energies that can offer us the greatest sense of completion on our spiritual journey. Not that I think that's a, you know, once and done, we finished, okay, well, who would get the award and we never have to do it again, like process of continual refinement. Um, but those stones that feel the most uncomfortable tend to offer us the deepest level of healing. That doesn't mean you have to buy the most expensive piece, get five pounds of it and wear it. Like when you go out grocery shopping, maybe it's like you get that one little tumbled stone and you work for it for five minutes in meditation, then you're like, oh, that was terrible. Okay, I'm done. Where's my rhodonite? <laughs> and, and you go to your favorite warm and fuzzy kind of stone and you build up a kind of tolerance or resistance or connection to it. And this is something I've done time and time again. And sometimes with like really surprising stones, like lapis lazuli was a hard one for me to work with. I appreciate it. The geology behind it, totally fascinating. Devoted an entire chapter to it in my first book, but it took a while to be willing to get to that place because I I bought the expensive jewelry and beads like this and put it on immediately and it's like, oh, this is miserable. <laughs> Why did I do this? <laughs> and uh, I promptly took it off because I was at work and, you know, decided to spend time with that. I had to find the therapeutic container that was safe for that, build the space and allow myself time to be vulnerable. And then allow myself to decompress afterwards and do things that were soul feeding. And it was useful. And, you know, it's one of my warm and fuzzy stones now. I don't wear it all the time, but I can wear it for a whole day, no problem. And it's, it's often really funny which stones we, we tend to avoid. Yeah, it really got me thinking about kyanite. Like my wedding jewelry is kyanite and diamond and it's beautiful it's too beautiful for me to wear like every day pretty much um mm. but yeah it's like what is it about that I see it all the time in stores and go oh I love that what is that and I go oh kyanite and then put it down <laughs> like, <laughs> and I have no idea why I just never find a reason anyway so um that was food for thought for sure. I, I have one little technical question. You So the book has quite a lot of awesome um, crystal grids and layouts for the body and just like, oh, it gets very practical. And I love that. And I noticed in one of the pictures, um, you have 
crystals with terminations in the hands and in one hand pointing downwards and one hand pointing upwards. And then you like show that again and you, you flesh it out a little bit in another layout. I'm just curious, <clears throat> what's, what's the rationale there? Um, it's a way to create a very quick but effective energy circuit. So, um, you know, for, for a battery to work, both ends have to make contact with the, the device. For uh, our, our chargers to work, the prongs all have to be in, depending on where you live in the world and how many prongs you've got and what their configuration is. Um, and especially if we look at like larger larger stuff that we've got to plug in here in the States, we have a third prong that not everything has, but that's the grounding prong. So that completes a circuit. So there's a safe discharge, a safe outlet if there is um, too much energy. And uh, so things don't short and break. So by having one termination facing in, usually in your non-dominant hand, but I believe we're energy, we're energetically ambidextrous if we want to be, it's, you know, the map and the territory. We don't want to confuse them again. So energy right. can flow in either direction through both hands, but it's just a matter of how how sensitive or what our default is going to be. So by by doing that one point facing inwards and one point facing outwards, it creates a sort of natural circuit through us. So um, think of it as like a regular inhale and exhale, but more like circular breathing. It never ends. It's just continuous. And that's really good for clearing out the gunk, to use a really technical expression in my life. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for that. It made sense to me looking at it. And it's something I do sitting when I'm doing trance journey sometimes where it's like, I'll connect a circuit or I'll open and close and that sort of thing with my hands. But um, not being a a very frequent crystal practitioner, that was nice to see the level of Mm. detail there. So thank you for that. Um, Sure. As we're kind of moving towards closing, I I wanted to leave listeners with something very useful and applicable. Uh, In your book, you recommend amber for seasonal affective disorder. So that's an interesting stone, not stone kind of situation, right? And I was like, okay, so why? You, You know, you have these recommendations and because I've read the book, by the time I get to that point, I'm trusting you and I'm like, okay, Nicholas. You, Nicholas says it's good, then let's use that. But I thought, why amber for seasonal affective disorder? And are there other stones you'd recommend sort of just generally to people who are heading into a second winter of pandemic malaise? Oh, yeah, really, really great stuff here. So um, the one limitation I had writing Crystal Basics was that I, I had to create, I chose to create an encyclopedic portion with very short entries. If you read my very first book, it's like 10,000 words per crystal. So I, I couldn't do that here and have 200 crystals. I mean, do that math, it'd be a very, very big book. So I don't always get to describe the how and the why behind it. But if we look at what amber is, it is polymerized tree resin. It's very, very old. It's more or less non-crystalline. It's organic, so it's not really a mineral, but we'll we'll, we'll let it in the club anyway, because we're inclusive <laughs> here. Um, but if we think about what that substance originally was, the sap borne by the tree is like sunlight made solid. So mm. sunshine serves as the source of metabolic energy in, in organisms that, that photosynthesize and that is transported along a series of fluids, not really the same resin that ends up as amber, but you know it all starts somewhere. Um, so the fact that we have this sunshine made solid makes it really good for the seasonal affective disorder. And it's long been associated with the sun, even when people believed it was a product of the waters, because along the Baltic coast, you'd find it wash up with the waves. 
from the seashore. Like this was not, not a thing they connected to trees. Um, hmm. it, the, the color, the innate warmth of it, um, the electrical charge it takes up by rubbing and polishing it, um, all, all feel very magnetic, dynamic, warming. And so we associate that with sunshine. It turns out that it's also, you know, a very distant byproduct of sunshine. Um, so it has that warming, almost effervescent kind of quality, but it keeps us rooted. So we can learn to nourish ourselves. We learn to slow down like sap that hardens and allow that to be a natural rhythm and not, not get knocked off center by that slowing down that happens in wintertime. Um, other stones that I might choose to work with going into a second winter during a pandemic, um, one that I'm coming to a lot lately is bloodstone. Bloodstone is a stone of courage. Um, it mobilizes us in a lot of ways. Now, there's a, a particular branch of crystal healing that's known as gemstone energy medicine or sometimes just gem therapy, which can apply to other things as well. But um, it's one of the stones that vibrationally they work with for the immune system. And of course, I'm not making any medical claim here, but you know, the, the vibrational counterpart is its ability to mobilize things, whether that's your, your body's ability to respond to things that shouldn't be there or your energy body's ability to respond to things that shouldn't be there. Your, your courage's the, the ability for your courage to respond in the moment to things that feel uncomfortable. It's that mobility. And in the ancient world, it was connected to planet Mars. Mars, of course, rules conflict and drive and ambition and surgical implements because they're made out of, well, steel, which is iron, which is Mars's planetary metal. So it's all interrelated. So it's got this sense of like really being able to take action for your well-being. And so if we've got that wintertime funk, this is a stone that says, what do I need to do? Like, what is an actionable step that I need to take to focus on my well-being? Do I need to change my diet? Do I need to change my exercise routine? Do I need to like learn how to hibernate like a bear and just wake up in the springtime? Like, whatever it's going to be, reasonably speaking. Um, I feel like this is a stone that gives us the strength, the perspicacity, and the willingness to take action to make that happen. Amazing. Oh, good recommendations. Well, the last question on the podcast is always about grief and rage. And um, I'm doing a sneaky thing here by like kind of getting more crystal advice out of you <laughs> by phrasing it this way. But, but which crystals do you reach for to help you cope with grief and rage? And, and maybe specifically, how do you access support um, from them? Well, to bring it right back to the top of our conversation, rhodonite is one of my favorite ones for this because, again, it's that, that overpowering or overwhelming kind of emotion. It helps us drop the anchor so we can sit with that and not lose ourselves in it. Um, another one that I might mm -hmm. recommend is obsidian. And obsidian has this ability to kind of hone the mind. Like, don't pay attention to the distracting bits of this, but like, what's really the point of focus here? simultaneously it can reflect to us what's happening below the surface. We might think we're angry about one thing or feeling grief about another. And there are usually so many layers to these kinds of emotions. And we've got to like peel back over and over again to get to like what the root is. And obsidian is that really honest friend who sees the root and tells you. It's mm. up to you to do something about it. But you know that friend who looks you up and down once before you leave the house and like, really girl, like <laughs> this belt and those shoes. And you're like, oh, okay, I'll change. And then you do, and you have a fabulous time, right? So that's obsidian, but it's your psychological shit and not, not your wardrobe. So these are two stones that I like to work with. And I find that intense emotions, 
in my life at least, often result in a state of uncertainty. And that uncertainty is my trigger for anxiety, my trigger for panic, my trigger for a whole lot of stuff. If we have lost someone near to us, if we are grieving the loss of a, a, a way of life, thanks to the pandemic, um, there is a, um, a requisite amount of certainty that is also invoked by that. So when I work with obsidian for uncertainty, what I will like to do is actually just place it over my center of gravity. I'll stand up, um, you know, shoulder square, feet shoulder width apart in a real like nice powerful pose and just take that piece of obsidian and place it over whatever I envision my center of gravity to be. Now, if you want to use a chakra model, maybe you'll use a, a chakra that is meaningful to you, maybe the heart for its emotional components, maybe the solar plexus. Um, for the, the gut feeling, the gut response to this, I'll sometimes even place it a little bit lower, go over the navel because it, it feels like it's calming things down. And I will often do very simple meditations with crystals when I'm trying to get some sort of um, therapeutic effect from them. And I like to do something called crystal breathing, place a stone mm. someplace meaningful. And wherever that stone is, is my new nose for the rest of this meditation. So I'm inhaling through the stone and that's not just drawing in life force and air like normal, but it's also drawing in, filtering, transforming that energy through the crystal's energy itself, co cohering, unifying, and training that energy. Um, and you know, you might do this specifically. You know, I've got a broken knee. I, I did this years ago when I had a motorcycle accident. I used um, skeletal nourishing stones around the broken knee and envisioned breathing its energy to that space. It was very pointed kind mm -hmm. of focus for something more nebulous, like an emotion. Like where does that live in your body? Maybe it produces a palpable, tangible sensation. So you imagine sending the breath with that energy there. Other times I'll just inhale. And as I exhale, I let it permeate my body and I just observe where it wants to go. And I'll go, oh, really? The small of my back. I never would have imagined that. And mm -hmm. I find it really important not to dissect that. I'm not diagnosing, I'm not analyzing, I'm not interpreting, I'm just observing. And that's when we get the most real experience. You can do all that stuff afterwards if you feel really called to, but just have the experience in the moment. Um, so maybe with rhodonite, this is one that feels really good over my heart, not just because it's pink, but because manganese has a particular relationship to the pericardium, the membrane around the heart, which symbolically represents our emotional boundaries. You know, if the heart is mm -hmm. the origin of our emotions, the pericardium, the membrane around it is our emotional boundaries. We often mm -hmm. feel things like rage when our emotional boundaries are violated in some way, mm -hmm. intentionally or not, from within or without. Um, so placing that there and imagining breathing into the heart center is really, really good. Mm -hmm. to, to, to be very blunt, it just, it feels right. And again, just observe. I allow it to flow where it needs to. And then when I'm done, I, I let go of that excess energy. I discharge it by completing the circuit between my body and that of the earth. So I might imagine roots or some other grounding technique, whatever feels good for you. And uh, then I just kind of come back to the moment and take inventory. It's mm. the biggest thing. We got to like check in with ourselves. Well, Nicholas, this has been fantastic. You know, just when you were like, it just feels really, really good i was like just like your book <laughs> it just Aww. feels really really good like i have like i said i have so many little notes in it and my little post-it darts and um it, it took me a long time to get through it because i was reading it going this i i love this i love this so much it's like my kind of book so i i really uh, appreciate everything that you've you've shared and um 
your warmth and goodness as a person comes through the page. And I'm glad we got to share it with the listeners. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Carmen. I, I really appreciate all your kind words. And I'm so grateful the book resonated with you. What did I tell you? Delightful and charming. Mm. Okay. Anything he does in the future, folks, I'm having him on. I promise. So find this episode's show notes with links to Nick's books and website uh, on numinouspodcast.com and follow him on Instagram at the luminous pearl. Okay, so for listener shout out today, I would like to offer my shout out to the four listeners in the Baden-Württemberg region of Germany. Why there specifically? Because that is the last place in Germany that my ancestors on my maternal grandfather's side lived about seven generations ago before they left. Uh, so they, they left to colonize the Black Sea area that was once known as Bessarabia. It was like Russia at the time. Um, it's now known as the Moldovian Republic in Eastern Europe. So for three generations, they were colonizers in Russia, farmers. They were known for that entire hundred years as ethnic Germans. And then they came to Canada around the turn of the last century. Um, they still felt themselves to be and very strongly identified as German for another generation, uh, even a generation born in Canada. So they were Germanic. And uh, Baden-Württemberg is where they hailed from, the land of the Black Forest, at the edge of the Rhine River with Alsace just on the other side. Actually, where some of my favorite wines ever come from. Müller, Turgau, Chasselas, the entire Pinot family, especially Love Pinot Blanc, love me a Pinot Blanc. Riesling, I mean, these are hands down some of the best wines in the world to me. So, it, you know, when I think ancestrally, nobody in my immediate family was really into wine, but I just had this like totally romantic, I mean, I'm a black sheep, I'm an outlier in like multiple areas of my family, but uh, yeah, I went like hard into wine. Did you know I have my W set three advanced level qualification for wine industry professionals? From the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, systematic approach to tasting evaluating wines. Yeah, passed with distinction. Highest honors. Got the lapel pin. Anyway, so I feel strong ties back to you, my German kin. Anyway, danke sehr. Danke. Danke schön. Vielen Dank. I appreciate you listening very much. And I send you much love from the new world. <laughs> okay. So friends, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this holiday season, I am once again doing my 12 days of Yuletide folk celebration. That's my Bernie Sanders. I am once again asking. Okay, so my 12 days of Yuletide folk celebration. It was formerly known as the Yuletide stocking stuffer. It's 12 daily micro rituals and mini meditations. So you can get them as a podcast on your podcast player, or you can go into the courses section of the network where there's like people posting pictures and chatting and you get behind the scenes stuff at my house. There's like recipe swaps happening. So, but if you just want to keep it casual, you can just like get the podcast every day for 12 days and you can easily fit it into your schedule. You could do it as a family, very family friendly. I'll tell you all about how to protect yourself from the wild hunt and the mean Yule cat. And I'll tell you what gingerbread houses have to do with the opera and the connection between pomanders and sperm whales and why we should watch out for werewolves at this time of year. 
Yeah, the history and folklore of Yuletide is bonkers, my friends, and I'm going to tell you all about it. So the first episodes have already been released, so they're ready for listening. They will help you get oriented to and like maybe kind of plan things out a little bit, things that you might want to forage or bake or supplies you might want to get for crafts. But things really start flowing on December 18th in the Numinous Network. There's going to be a special event under the full moon. I'm just going to like pour nurturance into you. I'll be like the amygdala whisperer, helping you to just like calm and, and fill your cup with love and care, dose the field with spiritual connection and safeness. And then on the 19th, I'm demonstrating how to make a fancy garland and a really beautiful wire-framed wreath. And then on the evening of December 20th, once again, I'm going to lead this cozy candlelit somatic practice session, and it'll be recorded so that you can replay it throughout the season as many times as you want or need. And then from solstice on December 21st to New Year's Day, as I explained, you'll get that private daily podcast full of folk customs and yuletide history and suggestions for self-directed rituals. It'll help you bring sacred intention to create meaningful holiday traditions of your own. I'm, I kind of see it as like a mashup between the Food Network and the History Channel and like a crafting show, kind of like all mixed together. Anyway, I just, I think it's good to end the year well, and I'd love to do it together. And the only place to find it is in the Numinous Network you want to do it with me so you can join us for a month and binge on all my offerings over the holidays just like netflix but with more co-regulation and the cost is a sliding scale from 45 to 75 dollars it's all inclusive and i really i don't mind if you cancel after a month in fact you know i'm pretty confident that you'll get so much value out of the network membership that even if you do cancel right away you'll probably come back later on like when you have more time or maybe when you're in crisis or burnout or something, just sometime you'll need support, you know, and that's cool. I, you know, you'll be like, you know, Carmen had a few courses and programs and offerings that I could really use right now. And you can come back. You'll be welcome back with, with open arms. Know, though, you cannot just buy one workshop or course. I know. Nope. That's the most common question. No, you, you have to join the network. But it's literally like getting a dozen courses for less than the price of one. So. Join for the one workshop or program you're interested in, and then you'll get the whole rest of the network, all my other courses and offerings, as a bonus. And if that's overwhelming, just ignore them. So I hope I'll see you in the Numinous Network this holiday season, my friend. We can post pictures of our altars and our trees and baked goods and share our playlists. That's happening now. Love it. You'll find all the details at CarmenSpaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.